You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi everyone, just as you're finding your seats again, I'm going to start uh, reading from Ephesians 1, uh, verse 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may... Sorry, just may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, for his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms." Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thanks, Steph. It'd be great if everyone could have uh, their Bible open at Ephesians chapter 1. There are some Bibles uh, around, I think, on the floor. If you're after an actual Bible, uh, it'd be great to follow along. Uh, If you don't know me, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, We've just started a series in Ephesians 1 to 4, so this is week 2. We're actually going to break it uh, over the sort of school holiday time, uh, revisiting the second part of First Thessalonians that we started earlier this year. Uh, so there'll be a few kind of different people preaching. Next week, Tim Shealy's going to be preaching on the start of First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. Yeah, woo! Uh, and then some other guys are going to be preaching in the, in the subsequent weeks. Uh, so we'll pick up our series in Ephesians uh, in a few weeks' time. Uh, There's an outline of my sermon on the uh, welcome card that Alicia referenced earlier, so you can follow along there if you like, Uh, but let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather around your word. Uh, I pray, Father, that you might speak to us, uh, that that you might give us humble hearts and minds that are ready to receive your word and be changed by it. We pray, Father, this afternoon that the result of our time together looking at your word and the fruit of my preaching might not just be more information about you, uh, but a genuine knowledge of you. Uh, We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, What were we made for as human beings? It's a big question. To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus offers us? It is knowing God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else to know God? I don't know if you've read the book Knowing God by the late J.I. Packer. Uh, It's a classic book. I encourage you to get it. But that's a quote from the book uh, Knowing God by Packer. What do you think we were made for as human beings? I want you to be persuaded this afternoon that you were made by God to know God. And once you have come to know God, to know him more. 
Uh, by knowing God, I don't just mean kind of believing that God exists or knowing a whole bunch of stuff about God. What do I mean? I mean actually relating to God, experiencing God, enjoying God, delighting in God. That's what I mean by knowing God. That's what the Bible means by knowing God. And of course, last week we looked at Paul's first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. That was verses 1 to 14. Uh, if you weren't here last week or just as a refresher, uh, you might remember that Paul uh, was uh, praising God, overflowing with praise uh, for all the blessings that God has already given his people, uh, that's Christians, through faith in Christ Jesus, his son. Uh, but in this second half of Ephesians uh, chapter 1, Paul prays another prayer. At this time, it's not a prayer of praise. Well, it starts with a prayer of thanks. But it's a prayer asking that God would help the Ephesian Christians to know all the more deeply and fully, all the more sort of comprehensively, uh, the blessings that they already have in Jesus. You see, sometimes I think as Christians, we might be tempted to go one of two ways. You know, sometimes we might say, hey, uh, we, we might be praying to God, God, please give me more blessings, new blessings, as if God is kind of stingy and tight-fisted and he's been holding out on us. But the first part of Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ so we can be overflowing with praise to him. Yet other times we might so emphasise the fact that, well, God's already given us everything in Jesus, uh, therefore the implication seems to be it's wrong to long for something more, for something deeper, for something more full and comprehensive. Well, Paul says no. He says pray that you know everything that God has given you in Christ all the more deeply. You see how Paul's two prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 give us real balance in our lives as Christians. We can give thanks to God, full of praise for everything he's already given us in Jesus, and yet we can also long for something more. We can praise God that by his grace we've already come to know him, and yet we can also long to know him more. And that's really what we're exploring today, right? God wants us as a church to be a church that is hungry to know him more. That's kind of central to what it means to be God's people, central to being the church together. It's being a people who don't only know God, but they're hungry to know God more, to plumb the depths of the glorious riches of who God is. God wants us to be a church that's hungry to know him more. So let's take a look at Paul's prayer. If you look first at verses 15 and 16, you'll see that Paul's prayer teaches us that it's actually a really good thing to give thanks to God if, by God's grace, you've already come to know him. We can give thanks to God for that. Take a look at verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. Now, if you've got Ephesians chapter 1 open, it would be great. Just, just scan back to verses 11 and 12. Uh, you'll see in verses 11 and 12, Paul reminded us uh, that it was the Jewish people who were first to put their hope in Christ. What does he mean by that? He means uh, he's thinking back to Acts chapter 2 in particular. 
Acts chapter 2, where Peter stood up and proclaimed the good news about Jesus, and a bunch of Jewish people who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost believed the good news about Jesus, and as a sign of them being included in God's people, they received God's Spirit. Now, the congregation, the church in Ephesus, was a mostly Gentile church. As you could imagine, they might have been thinking, hey, Paul, you know, are we a bit second rate here? You're like, are you going to mention us? And so if you look at verse 13... Uh, Paul speaks to the mostly Gentile congregation in Ephesus and he says, but don't forget, you also were included in Christ. You non-Jewish people in Ephesus. He's thinking about Acts chapter 19. You should read it later on. Acts chapter 19, Paul spent two years in the city of Ephesus proclaiming the good news about Jesus and masses of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, believed in the good news about Jesus and they received God's Spirit as a sign that they too were included in God's people. All of this is in Paul's mind at the start of verses 15 and 16 when he says, for this reason, I can't stop giving thanks to God. Like Paul is just filled with praise and thanks and joy as he thinks about these Ephesian Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who he knows really have come to know God. And you'll notice in verses 15 and 16 that there are two characteristics uh, that Paul points to to say, hey, this is why I know that you guys know God. The the first in verse 15 uh, is their faith in the Lord Jesus. Their faith in the Lord Jesus. A faith, it's not just a kind of box-ticking exercise where you say, yeah, I remember like 30 years ago I ticked a box on a card and said, yes, I believe in Jesus. Like, that's a wonderful thing to do at some point in your life. But Christian faith is a bit more kind of comprehensive and deep than that. Christian faith is about complete dependence on Jesus. Faith is like the faith you put in a chair when you sit on it. Like, if the chair's got rickety legs, you might be made a fool of, but you're putting your dependence on the chair. That's faith. A few times in my life, I've been abseiling. And when you go over the edge of that cliff, you're putting your faith in the rope, aren't you? You're depending on it. And that's what it means to put our faith in the Lord Jesus. It's radical dependence on him because you know that he is your only hope of receiving eternal life. And so Paul's so full of thanks because he sees, he's heard about that kind of faith amongst the Ephesians. And I've got to say, I'm thankful for seeing that kind of faith in the lives of many, if not most people here at DPC. As I sit with people, as I speak with people, as I hear kind of second, third hand about what's going on in people's lives, consistently I hear about people humbly depending on Jesus in all sorts of different circumstances. Some people in the midst of joy, some in sorrow. Some in sickness, some in health. Some in really good times, some in bad times. All sorts of people humbly depending on Jesus. And let me say, this is something that we should join Paul in giving thanks to God for. Give thanks to God that by his grace, we have come to put our dependence on the Lord Jesus, our faith in the Lord Jesus. Not because of anything about us, but because God worked in us to move us to trust in him. Of course, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus always leads to love for his people, for God's people. Jesus himself said that, uh, you might remember, in John chapter 13. How is it that Jesus said we would know his disciples in the world? 
It's by their love for one another. We live in a pretty individualistic society, which would uh, say in many ways that the most important thing is that you as an individual have your relationship with Jesus sorted out, and that you have faith in the Lord Jesus. And then that's really important. Of course, it's central. But love for God's people is not a sort of optional extra to the Christian faith. As if, oh yeah, I've got faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter if I go to church or I'm connected with other Christians. No, no, no. Love for God's people is a key mark of someone who really has come to know God. Someone who understands that to love Jesus is to love his bride, the church. And so Paul gives thanks not just for the faith of the Ephesians, but for their love for all God's people. And again, I give thanks for the love that I see amongst us here at DPC. Sure, we could do better. I'm sure we could. Like we haven't reached eternity yet. There's room to grow. But I don't know about you, but I look around, I see lots of evidence of love for one another. I personally receive encouraging text messages from people. Like that's an expression of their love for me. I'm sure you've received some too. I hear of people praying for one another sharing prayer requests. I see it on WhatsApp groups, an expression of love. I know that as soon as a meal train is posted, hey, this person's in need and they need meals for the next six weeks, Gabby, my wife, who coordinates it, says it just fills up within like 20 minutes. Wonderful expressions of love for God's people. There are people in our church with all sorts of different skills, you know, accountants and doctors and handy people, you know, like I see people, I hear of people using the gifts and talents that God has given them to help one another, to serve one another, to love one another. I know people are sharing possessions with one another, welcoming each other into their homes. But I praise God. Why don't you join me in praising God for the love that we see for God's holy people amongst us here at DPC? It's a good thing for us to give thanks to God that by his amazing grace, we've actually come to know God. And yet Paul prays for more than that. Notice in verse 17, he prays that the Ephesians would come to know God more. Verse 17, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, Uh, excuse me, Uh, yeah, the glorious Father, uh, that he might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation uh, that you may know him better. I wonder if you share Paul's longing. Paul says, I keep asking. This is not something that he's prayed for as a one-off. This is something that he's consistently and regularly praying for the Ephesians. This is what Paul wants for the Ephesians that they would know not just stuff about God, but they would actually know God more, enjoying him, delighting in him. This is what I want for our church. I hope it's what you want too. First, to be a church where people actually know God. Uh, In Presbyterian circles, uh, I don't know if it's well-founded or not, but we've got a, a reputation for being on about the Bible You know, if you want to know the truth of the Bible, get to a Presbyterian church, we'll teach you your doctrine and straighten you out, right? Like, that's our reputation. By knowing God, I don't just mean knowing the Bible. 
Of course, if you want to get to know God, you have to listen to his words. God's words are in the Bible. Of course, any church that's serious about knowing the Bible, uh, knowing God should have the Bible central. And yet, Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So I think we have to guard against this. Jesus says it's really possible to be diligent in studying the scriptures, uh, to have a kind of even an intimate knowledge of the scriptures, like the Jewish leaders he was speaking to in John 5, and yet not have a real relationship with God, not know the eternal life that comes from knowing God. What we're on about it is not just learning more stuff about God from the Bible, but actually knowing the God that the Bible points us to. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, this kind of American theologian, you can read up about him later on, he uh, kind of spoke, he gave an illustration about a couple of different types of knowledge. The illustration was of having a pot of honey in your cupboard or pantry at home. Uh, and someone's told you honey is sweet. You've never actually tasted honey for yourself, but you know that honey's sweet because someone told you that. Uh, they explained all sorts of reasons why honey is sweet. You might be able to explain those reasons to other people. But his point is you don't actually know that honey is sweet until a, a drop of honey goes on your tongue. Then you've actually tasted and experienced that honey is sweet. You know it in a deeper and, uh, and more rich way, don't you? And he says, that's the same with knowing God. You might know from reading the Bible that God is holy, that God is glorious, that God is loving, that God is gracious. But if you haven't tasted and experienced those things for yourself, there's a sense in which you only know stuff about God, but you haven't really come to know God through faith in Jesus, his son. You haven't been drawn into a relationship with God in which you understand yourself to be a broken and sinful person who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, whose heart has been melted by the love of God and filled with God's love for you by the power of his spirit. You've tasted the love of God. You've tasted the grace of God. That's what Paul wants for the Ephesians. That's what I want for us as a church. There's all sorts of things that Paul could pray that the Ephesians might know about them and their relationship with God more deeply. In verses 18 and 19, he prays about three things in particular. First, in verse 18, he prays that they might know the hope that God has called them to. Notice verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that. Always look out for those words. In order that, Paul's saying, hey, this is the purpose for my prayer in order that you might know the hope to which God has called you to. Now, uh, at DBC, we've got a, a quite a lot of uh, a kind of over-representation of health science people. Uh, so you might look at Paul's prayer and think, look, Paul's a bit confused about his anatomy. There's no eyes in the heart. Like, what's he on about? Right? So we understand, though, it's kind of a poetic expression Paul's not confused about anatomy. He understands that eyes are in our heads. He's saying, pray for greater spiritual insight, spiritual perception, to understand all the more deeply and clearly, first of all, the the wonderful hope that God has called you to. 
And that word called, it just means that when someone hears the good news about Jesus, the gospel, that, Paul says, is God calling people to himself. Oh, I don't know if you experienced that in your own life, in the process of becoming a Christian or kind of growing into your faith. Uh, certainly for me, it was as if God was kind of drawing me in each time I heard the good news about Jesus until I actually put my trust in it. Paul says God calls us to himself, but he calls us with a particular purpose in mind, a particular hope in mind. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said before, uh, there's a bit of confusion when it comes to the idea of hope in the Bible, uh, because we don't really have much more than a kind of vague sense of wishful thinking when we use the word hope, like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the kids don't get sick again. My kids are a bit sick at the moment, you know. That's a hope, but we all know it's not certain, right? We hope the kids don't get sick or that the traffic's not too bad on the way home from work. These are, we say we hope for these things, but there's no certainty about them. So sometimes we struggle with this idea of Christian hope. Well, that, that must be the same, right? It's just a pie in the sky, we hope it comes true, but we can't really know. But that's not what the, that's not what the Bible says, our hope as Christians is rock-solid secure because it's grounded in the historical fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Right, last week we saw Paul say uh, that the spirit in our hearts is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, our glorious hope. Another way of putting it is that Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee that 1 Corinthians 15 describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of God's new creation. The idea that if you get the first bit of the harvest in, it's a guarantee that the rest of the harvest is coming. So our hope, Paul is praying that we would have a glorious, a wonderful assurance and certainty about the hope that God has called us to. We can know for sure. We can know for sure that one day we will experience eternal life and see God face to face. We will be brought into a new heavens and new earth uh, where God will be so close to us that he'll wipe away every tear from our eye. Like that hope is certain. I wonder when the last time it was that you prayed that God would increase in you an assurance, a confidence uh, about the hope that he has called you to. Maybe you want to pray that this week. Maybe we could pray that together. A second Paul prays that the Ephesians would know how immeasurably precious they are to God. Now, you might look at these verses, 18 and 19, and say, I don't see anything about that. Uh, and that's true, those words aren't there exactly. But I think it's what Paul's praying uh, when he says, I, I pray that uh, you Ephesians would know uh, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Uh, so in Ephesians 1 already, Paul said, hey, the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Uh, and so lots of people read this and they say, oh, Paul's praying essentially what he just prayed about the hope thing, right? He's praying that the Ephesians would understand just how magnificent the inheritance is that they have to look forward to. And that's a great prayer to pray. I've just encouraged us, like, let's pray that prayer. But I don't think it's what Paul's praying here, right? Paul's actually saying to the Ephesians, I want you to understand really, really deeply and profoundly that as members of God's people, you are his glorious inheritance. 
Right? That's what it means for us to be God's glorious inheritance. In uh, what, what Paul means when he says, uh, I pray that you would understand uh, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Remember back in four, verses 4 and 5, you can look back there if you want. If you've got Ephesians 1 open, you'll see that God cho- uh, Paul says God chose us before the creation of the world uh, to be what? To be his beloved children, to be precious to him, to be welcomed into his family and showered with every blessing in Christ Jesus. And here Paul's saying, I want you to understand that more deeply. I, I want you to understand that you are God's treasured prize, You are his beloved child. I'm not sure that you get the fullness of that yet. So Paul says, I'm praying for this. I wonder what it would look like for God to answer Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. The other day, I was, uh, my son Charlie had had done something wrong and uh, we'd had the kind of, you know, discipline type conversation where he'd done something wrong. Uh, he'd kind of run away upstairs. You know, this happens since Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve did something wrong and they run away and hide. Uh, and that's what we all do when we know we've done something wrong. So Charlie had, had run away and he was hiding in our bedroom. And uh, so I went up uh, to him and I said to him, Charlie, you know, um, even though you've done something wrong, you know that I love you, don't you? And he was on the other side of the room. He did what kids do when they're grumpy and kind of grunted at me and didn't really answer. And so I, I said, well, why don't you come over here? Kind of picked him up, held him close, whispered in his ear, Charlie, mate, you know that I love you, don't you? He said, yes, Dad, I know. Now, I think that's what it's like. That's what it would be like if God was to answer the prayer that Paul's praying. That by the power of his spirit, God would open our hearts and minds We wouldn't just know in our heads that we're precious to God, but it would feel like God, our Heavenly Father, was picking us up and drawing us close and whispering in our ears, saying, you know that I love you, don't you? Like, do you really understand how precious you are to me? I sent my son, his precious blood was shed for you because I wanted you to be my glorious inheritance. I wanted you to be my beloved child. You know that I love you. This is what Paul's praying for the Ephesians. I hope that we might pray this together. That God would pour out his spirit into our hearts and minds. And that we would know how immeasurably precious we are to God. And then third, Paul prays in verse 19, uh, from the start of verse 19, that uh, that the Ephesians would know uh, God's incomparably great power. You see, that power, Paul says, uh, is the same Uh, as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Uh, As human beings made in God's image, uh, it is true that we uh, have quite a bit of power in this world that we live in. If you think about the kind of progress and development, as human beings we can kind of make new technologies and we can educate people more and more effectively. We can create new systems of justice we can prolong human life more than any, any time in human history. Right? Have all sorts of power, uh, but there's one thing that every time I go to a funeral, I'm reminded by. We do not have power over death. No matter what we do, death just keeps swallowing up the people we love. And what's Paul saying here? He's saying, Ephesian Christians, 
God is not powerless in the face of death. God does not stand helplessly at the graveside and go, oh, gee, death has won. No. God showed us that by raising Christ, his son, from the dead. So Paul's praying, first of all, that the Ephesian Christians would know that it's those who have faith in Christ and are united with Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead beyond the grave, so too they one day will be raised from death beyond the grave. And yet that's not the main thing he's praying for. You see, he's praying that they would know Christ's, uh, God's incomparably great power uh, that is at work, at work for them now, in their lives right now. How is it that, uh, I don't know how you would answer that, how is it that you know the incomparably great power of God in your life right now as you live as a Christian? There would be a, a, a branch of Christianity that might say, hey, you know that you know the power of God if you're never depressed. You know the power of God if you don't get sick. You don't experience suffering. You're kind of more than a conqueror. Christian life, victory after victory. That's how you know that you're experiencing the power of God. And yet Jesus knew the fullness of God's power, and his life was full of suffering and sorrow. So that doesn't seem to fit, does it? And Paul himself says that God's power is displayed in our weakness. That's the centre of the Christian faith, isn't it? Where do we see God's power? It's in the weakness of the cross. And so how do we know God's power in our lives right now? What would it look like for this prayer to be answered? I think it's answered uh, by God's power enabling us to keep living differently to the world around us. Even when we know that we might get rejected or mocked and we feel really weak. Like God's power enables us to keep doing that. God's power enables us to keep taking the next step of trusting in Jesus. You, know, you might feel today that you're stumbling and falling around in your Christian faith. You feel like giving up or turning back. God's power will sustain you to take the next step of trusting in Christ. God's power helps us in the everyday kind of battlefield of life when we feel tempted and lured away to sin. God's power helps us to say no. No to the sinful desires of our hearts. Not perfectly, of course. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. Uh, but as we humbly depend on God, say, I, I can't do this without you, God actually does empower us to live lives that please him. It's God's power that enables us to take our stand against the devil's evil schemes. Paul will remind us of that in Ephesians chapter 6. But it's God's power that enables us to do that, and it's clear that that's on Paul's mind. Uh, take a look at where Paul goes next in his prayer. Uh, he says, let me find, uh, yeah, take a look, verse 20. Uh, God's, mighty, um, uh, God's mighty strength seated Christ at his right hand uh, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, uh, and every name that is invoked, uh, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. Right? Christ reigns supreme, Paul says, over every power and authority. 
are the words there. It's not just powers and authorities in this world, like in this physical world. It's also powers and authorities in the spiritual world. And Paul knows that it's really important for the Ephesians that they understand that Christ is the supreme spiritual power. Uh, If you read Acts chapter 19, you'll see that before they became Christians, many of the Ephesians uh, practiced sorcery to get a a living. Uh, So in Acts 19, they they come out and they're publicly burning all their scrolls and spells, the, the symbols of their witchcraft and occult practices, right? And as Paul says in verse 21, they would have invoked all sorts of names, names that had great power in their regions, Uh, So it's important for them them to know that Christ, in his incomparably great power, is at work in them and for them. And Paul would want all of us to know that. That's what Paul drives home at the end of his prayer. He talks about the relationship between Christ and us as his church. Uh, He says, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything uh, for the church, which is his body, Uh, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God has put all things under Christ. Christ is head and Lord over all. Uh, But notice that little phrase, Paul says, Christ uh, is head over all for who? Take a look again. Christ is head over all for the church. You see, back in verses 9 and 10, uh, remember Paul said that God's plan for the whole cosmos is to unite everything under Christ as head, under Christ as Lord. And we know that right now, the place where we see that, the place where that's made concrete, is in the church, the body of Christ. But who is it that declares that Christ is head? His body. That's the picture here. But Paul, you see, I guess I think this kind of expands our vision for the significance of the church. You know, when we gather together on a Sunday afternoon and there's not many of us in comparison to the community around us, we feel fairly insignificant, increasingly kind of pushed to the margins of society. I don't know if you've heard this, but I've certainly been told that you as a more conservative Christian are going to end up on the wrong side of history on all sorts of different issues. It's easy to think, oh, gee, like, like maybe they're right. And yet Paul says here that every time we gather together as God's people, we are declaring the future. We're telling the world that in the end, Christ will be head over all. But far from being on the wrong side of history, every time we gather together and praise Jesus as Lord, uh, we're giving people a glimpse of the end of history. So there's a sense in which, uh, even though we might be concerned about a particular church or uh, different parts of the body of Christ, we might think, oh, gee, like that, that church is really being conformed to the world around them. The reality is, in the end, the world is going to be conformed to the church. That's that's a pretty big mind-bending thing, isn't it? Paul says right now it's in the body of Christ where we declare that Christ is head, but in the end that's going to be true of the whole world. Christ's transforming power that is now experienced in his body, see verse 23, by the power of his spirit, uh, will one day fill everyone and everything. And everyone and everything will declare that Christ is Lord. 
Paul wants us to be deeply convinced that God in his immeasurably great power, incomparably great power, is at work in us and for us. So God wants us to be a church that not only knows him, but is hungry to know him more. What might a church like that look like, kind of practically? Uh, I've got four suggestions. I'm sure you could come up with more suggestions or better suggestions. These are the ones we'll we'll run with today. Four suggestions. What what does a church look like that is hungry to know God more? Uh, the, The first thing is I think that a church that is hungry for that would regularly pray about this together. And we know that no one comes to know God in the first place unless God graciously reveals himself to them. Like it's a supernatural, spiritual thing that God does. He shows himself to people. Likewise, we only know God more if God graciously reveals himself to us. So I think a church that is hungry to know God more will pray regularly, God, would you please show us more of yourself? A bit like we sung in More of Your Son, the song. God, please show us more of your son. Right? Sometimes, like God, our Heavenly Father loves us. He knows our needs. He wants us to pray to him for our needs, for our concerns. I wonder, though, if we pray often enough that God would show us himself, give us himself, not just the stuff that we want, but that God would show us himself that we would know him all the more deeply. So that's the first thing, that we would pray together about this. Uh, The second thing, a church that's hungry to know God more, I think will be a church that listens together. I said earlier, of course, you can't get to know anyone unless you listen to their words. Likewise, you can't get to know God unless you listen to his words in the Bible. We know it's not just about the Bible. I said that earlier, not just knowing stuff in the Bible, but knowing the God uh, who's speaking to us in the Bible. But still, it is the case that the Bible ought to be central to our community life. It's why we encourage people to get along to church so you can hear from God in his word or in a gospel community or a connect group or read the Bible one-on-one with someone over coffee. But a church that's hungry to know God more is a church that listens together. A third, a church that's hungry to know God more uh, is also a church, I think, that reflects together. Uh, It's really possible to hear, I I don't know if you've had this experience, I used to do a Bible reading plan uh, that had lots and lots of chapters to read every day, and I found that I listened to lots of God's Word, but I didn't necessarily feel like I got to know God more, because I wasn't actually making any space to process it or digest it. And I think that's what we can be like sometimes. We need space to reflect together on God's word. So it it kind of helps us to actually get to know God more. I I reckon, this is my assessment, you might disagree, I think we do an okay job of doing that in more structured contexts, like a a gospel community where we meet together and listen to God's word and reflect on it together. I'm not sure we do quite as good a job in less structured contexts, like conversations after church. Like, I know even for myself as a pastor, it feels more natural for me to ask people and talk with people about the footy and the weather and like all sorts of other things than it does to talk about God's word. Like, I, 
I've been praying this week, and I hope you join me in praying, that it would become more natural for us to reflect on God's word together. Not just in the structured context, but just in the chit-chat as well. And so the fourth thing is, uh, um, it'd be nice if all of this stuff uh, would just happen, kind of magically or organically, uh, but the reality is it takes a little bit of planning. I think a church that's hungry to know God more will actually make plans together. You might say, oh, that sounds so dry and structured and rigid. You know, this is about the spirit, not about, you know, plans and diaries. Yet when I wanted to get to know Gabby more, it was funny, but she expected me to make time for her in my diary. Like we actually had to make plans so we could be together and talk with one another and reflect together. And so I think in the midst of our busy lives, I think we're doing an okay job of this, but in the midst of our busy lives, we're unlikely to pray together or reflect together or listen together that often if we don't plan to do it. I think we have plans for lots of things in life, financial plans, you know, exercise plans, whatever other plans you can think of, study plans. I wonder what your plan is for the next two weeks, three months, six months to get to know God more. Do you have a plan? Do we have a plan? Like maybe you could talk about that in your gospel community. What ideas do you have? What's your plan for getting to know God more together? God wants us to be a church that's hungry to get to know him more. I pray that God would be working us by the power of his spirit to draw us into a deep and abiding knowledge of him that we know the love of God, our Heavenly Father, through faith in Jesus, his Son, in the power of his Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for Paul's prayer that the Ephesians uh, might know you more. Thank you for the model it is to us. We pray, Father, that we would give thanks to you uh, if by your grace we have already come to know you. We pray, Father, that you would be at work in our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit. Uh, that we would be hungry to know you more, know more of your grace and power and love, more of your goodness, uh, that these would not just be things that we know in our head, but things we can taste and see, uh, that you are good and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.